You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We open our Bibles this afternoon to Romans chapter 12, the verses 1 to 8. One of the many scripture passages cited at the bottom of Lord's Day 32 is this particular passage from Romans 12, which reminds us about the whole matter of living as living sacrifices of Jesus Christ. We read, therefore, from Romans 12, 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. We now turn to Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merits of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent way or walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Love congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have come this afternoon to Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and you can easily see that it is now the third part that we have entered Look above, Lord's Day 32, and you see the words, our thankfulness. Some translations have our service or our gratitude. Our particular translation has our thankfulness. Now, you might be inclined to say at this point, fine, but what does this mean? And really, what difference does this Lord's Day and this last section of the Catechism really make? What we need to understand, beloved, is that here in this third part of the catechism, it is application time. 
It is truth's application time. It's on to working with and working out what we have learned in the first part of the catechism about our sin and misery and in the second part of the catechism about our deliverance. And it's seeing what kind of a difference does this make? What kind of difference does all of this theology that you've been ingesting for the past weeks and months What difference does it make in your life? And that's also why question 86 really is about the last part. Why must we yet do good works? Now, perhaps, just perhaps you thought that you were finished with good works and that it's kind of a closed chapter by now. After all, back in Lord's Day 24, we stated that our good works, and there we also talked about good works, but we said they're all imperfect and defiled with sin. And there we also said that really, when it comes down to it, our good works, when it comes to salvation, don't earn us anything. No brownie points, no air miles car points or miles or what have you, nothing. It insists that when it comes to salvation, what really counts is faith. True faith in Jesus Christ. But you'll notice, in spite of that, we're not yet finished with good works, not quite. The Catechism wants to say more about them. And the Catechism insists, if you read very carefully, that we're not getting into optional material here, take it or leave it stuff. No, this is essential. Notice question 86 again. Why must we yet do good works? So contrary to what Roman Catholics believe, we Protestants do believe in the necessity of good works. We believe that true Christians are faith at work Christians. We believe that God's children, also these children baptized here this afternoon, one day have to become active, fruitful, alive, in terms of their faith. And we believe, really and truly, that with outworks, faith really is dead, no matter what you say. But, beloved, before we get into all the nitty-gritty of these works that the Catechism is going to refer to, there are some introductory remarks, there are some reminders, some pointers, some fundamentals to remember. And I put them under the following heading, A Grateful Life. First of all, we're going to look at its center. Then we're going to look at its means. And finally, its reasons. Now, beloved, Lord's Day 32 opens with a... Long, but direct, personal question addressed to each one of us. Why must we, you and I, do good works? Why should we live a special life? Why does God want us to be different? Why do we have to stick out from the crowd? Now, over time, a variety of different answers are given to those questions. 
Maybe the most popular answer is, well, you know, my, my parents, my, my parents expect it. You know, in a way, that's understandable. The, my parents gave me birth. They, they love me. They shelter me. They cared for me. They fed me. They do all sorts of things for me. I've cost them a fortune. They act as teachers, maids, chauffeurs, counselors, bankers. They do all kinds of stuff for me. Quite simply, I owe them big time. And so the result is that some children do what their parents expect out of a sense of of duty and obligation. You know, it's kind of payback time. And and some parents, believe it or not, will even use this as leverage and say to their children when they're concerned about their children, you owe me, you owe us. But is that the right reason? Is that the right answer to the question, why must we do good works? I do them because my parents insist on them. They insist that payback has to be in the form of regular worship attendance and Bible reading and prayer and tithing and not swearing or drinking or carousing. Now, in a sense, there's a lot of good things in those lists, right? But it's still not the right answer. It's not the answer that the catechism according to the scriptures it looking for and wants to hear. So what is it? Well, how about this? My friends expect it. That's another common kind of reason that I, I don't hear it so much as I, I sense it. And I get those vibes. My, my friends are, are into religion, and, and if I want to be part of the crowd, then I have to do as they do, or else I'll soon be on the outside looking in. And who wants that? Who wants to be ostracized? Who wants to be an outsider? Who wants to be out of the crowd? No one. Yes, and you know that sometimes becomes apparent in the matter of public profession of faith as well. As minister... And as elders, you stress to the person doing it, you need to do it for you. Because you personally are convinced, convicted, committed. But then later on, you may sadly discover that they did it more for others than even for themselves. They felt the pressure. They succumbed to the group dynamics. My friends do it, so I do it. Now, if you have good friends, even good Christian friends, there is something positive here, and yet it's still not good enough. To answer the question, why must we yet do good works, with the words, because my friends do them, doesn't wash. It doesn't cut it. Well, then what about this one? It makes me feel good. Here, the motivator is not parents or friends, it's self. And indeed, some people do see good works as a form of self-improvement. 
You know, this is very much a feel-good kind of age in which we're living, and, and many people do things, believe it or not, because it makes them feel good. It adds to their sense of self-esteem, which is, of course, so important. It improves their life and its quality. It gives them added worth. Now, again, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with trying to improve your life and even yourself. But yet that, too, is not the real reason. It cannot be the true source. So what is? If not parents, if not friends, if not self, what else is there? Well, beloved, here, once again, the catechism is very helpful. It gives you the answer. And you might say that both question and answer, 86, give it in a lot of words, but but really, truly, it, it comes down to one or, or two words in the end. And it are those two words, and you may have caught them, those two words, because Christ. We are to do good works The catechism is saying, according to the scriptures, because of Christ. Because we know him. Because we love him. Because we stand in awe of him. Because he is the Lord and the master of our lives. You see, he has so captured our thoughts and filled our hearts and overwhelmed our feelings and changed our lives that this is the dominant question of our life. What can I render to my Savior now? Or what has he not done? It's the kind of question that needs an overwhelming reaction. And maybe you can even boil it down. You can boil it down probably to three things. First of all, we we love him because salvation is a humble work. He came down from heaven to earth. He laid his glory aside. He assumed, believe it or not, our flesh and blood. He went from heaven to Bethlehem to Jerusalem. He went from a crown to a crib to a cross. And he did so willingly, voluntarily, freely. God the Father never, ever had to twist his arm. Never. And isn't that amazing and humbling? And you know, then there is also the liberating work of Jesus Christ. Christ came into a situation in which sin and rebellion, death and destruction dominated. He came to a people mired in trespass, enslaved to the devil, dead in transgressions. If you think that he came to this earth because you are such first-class citizens and such absolutely perfect specimens and that you just deserve to be saved, forget it. That's not the way it is. We all 
where people without hope, without respect, without life, and without a future. And what he did is he came and he gave his life and he shed his blood and he suffered beyond our wildest imaginations. He redeemed us by his blood. And as a result, our sins are paid for. The sins of these children are paid for. That's the promise. Our estrangement with God the Father is ended. Our slavery to sin, the world, and the devil is over. We're free. Free in Christ. Liberated forever. And so there's the humbling work of Jesus Christ, which generates thankfulness. There's the liberating work of Christ. There's also the glory work of Christ. For not only has Christ opened or paid our ransom, he's also opened a new and living way. A way back to God. A way back home. A way to life above and glory everlasting. You know, it it strikes me so often that people pour all their living into a few short years. They think, I've got to get every ounce of pleasure and fun and whatever have you out of this life, as if this life is all. This is only the beginning. A very small beginning. And a long, great, endless future of glory awaits. For those who belong to Christ. And so, beloved, what a a wonderful Savior we have. What a glorious Redeemer is ours. What a marvelous King rules over us. Yes, and He is now to be the source of my praise, the cause of my joy. And fundamentally, He's the reason for my obedience. And indeed, the only thing that can properly motivate, drive, and and spur a believer on is his or her love and devotion for Christ. Nothing else can do it. Nothing else will do it. And do you understand that? Do we all grasp that there is ultimately... Only one true motivator and engine that can drive your life as a believer, and that has to be your love. Your commitment to your Savior. And may that be there for all of you. And may it also one day be there for all of these children baptized here this afternoon. May they come to the day and the moment where they say, Jesus Christ is everything to me. He is my all and all. And so, beloved, the reason why we do good works, the center is focused on Jesus Christ. 
But then we also need to understand, and that's pointed out to us as well, that the Holy Spirit is the means and the instrument that Jesus Christ continually uses in this regard. After all, if you ask yourself, who, who transformed the life of the disciples? Who changed those 120 people in Acts 1? Who equips the church of Jesus Christ? And again, there's really only one answer, and that is the Spirit. The, the Catechism says in answer 86, because Christ also renews us, how? By His Holy Spirit. And why is the Spirit the answer? Well, first of all, think about this. The Spirit is the one who ultimately convicts us. What causes you to be able to call a sin a sin? Lots of people look at sin and they say that's a minor slip-up. That's just a, a, a little thing gone wrong. The scripture says it's sin. And what enables you to see the sin? What is it that enables you to see the darkness? What is it that stirs your conscience? What is it that gives you an eye for evil and depravity? What makes you realize that we are living in desperate need of forgiveness, peace, and righteousness with God? It's only the Spirit of Christ. He alone is in the truly convicting and convincing business. Yes, he convicts and he convinces. Maybe conviction is the negative, convincing is the positive. For not only do we need to see our sin, that first of all, we also need to see God's answer to sin, and that is Christ. And what is it that makes the word and the promise of the gospel come alive in our hearts? Who is the one who, as the canons say, and we don't often go to the canons, but the canons are filled with nuggets. As the canons say in Article 11, enlightens the mind, penetrates into the innermost recesses of man, opens the closed and softens the hard heart. Who does all that kind of stuff? Who does major mind and brain and heart surgery? In the spiritual sense of the word. It's only the Holy Spirit. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Quite simply, the Spirit has to live in us. And the Spirit has to open our eyes. Before we know and before we believe. And of course, the Spirit also has to change us, right? It's not just a matter of convincing us about sin and convicting us about Jesus Christ, but it's also a matter of of changing our, our whole life. Without the work and the power of the Spirit, our lives are 
are filled actually with the works of the flesh. And, and you know about the works of the flesh. You can find them in, in Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. It's a description of our modern society, the society in which we live. This stuff goes on every day, every moment. We live in it. But, beloved, the Spirit comes. And the Spirit works in us in such a way that our lives begin to change. And they change radically. And instead of bringing and producing no fruit or perverted fruit, they produce real fruit. Galatians 5, and the children here all know it, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What a glorious list of glorious qualities. And all of these are grown by the Spirit. The Spirit reshapes our lives. Again, the canons say the same regenerating spirit instills new qualities into the will. He makes the will which was dead alive, which was bad good, which was unwilling willing, which was stubborn obedience. He moves and strengthens it so that like a, a good tree, it may be able to produce the fruit of good works. You see, beloved, Jesus Christ, your Savior, uses the Holy Spirit to convict you, to convince you, to renew you. And the result, we are a new people. We are people made in the image of Christ. Children who become more and more like their Master, Savior, and Lord. You know, once we were in the image of God, totally. Once upon a time, our lives are filled with righteousness and holiness. But but then in time, of course, we threw it all overboard and we opted for the image of the devil. But but not forever. Christ sends his spirit. To a dead people living, as we said this morning, in darkness. Because the king, the great king, wants new subjects. And more subjects, and true subjects, and living subjects. He wants subjects who will reflect him. And be filled with his goodness, righteousness, and holiness. So the Spirit goes to work. And then what, beloved, then people are remade in the image and likeness of Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it so well in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Imagine that. We all reflect the Lord's glory. Are being transformed into the likeness, his likeness, with ever increasing glory. Which comes from the Lord. Who is the Spirit. You see, the Spirit keeps on working every day 
He keeps on transforming us. He keeps on glorifying us, as it were. He keeps on making us more and more into what are good work machines. People who know the meaning of real gratitude. Well, then, beloved, excuse me for asking, why does Christ bother? Why does Christ send the Spirit to change us to be after his image? Why Why go to all this work? Because this is a lot of work and a lot of effort. Well, the first reason, and there actually are three reasons you can find back in the Catechism. First of all, Christ wants us to live a total life. The result of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit is that our lives slowly but surely are gradually being changed totally. Not partially, not superficially, but utterly. The Catechism, for example, summarizing Scripture says, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for His benefits and He may be praised by us. Our whole life is at stake here. And that means not just our Sunday life. As believers, we are sometimes called Sunday Christians. It means that we wear our Christian identity only one day out of seven. You know, one day is for dressing up, going to church, worshiping, praying, singing, resting, And the other six days, you are free, free to swear, to lust, to steal, to cheat, to rip off, to gossip, to be sexually immoral. What a study in contrast. Yet, true believers are not like that. They serve Christ seven days, a whole week. They serve Christ everywhere, not just in a church building or near it. They serve Christ in everything they do. Their lives are not being compartmentalized into grace and nature, holy and profane, truth and falsehood. They strive to live different lives all the time. That's what Christ wants. Seven day, 24 hour Christians. But he also wants, and that's to be found here as well, he wants us to live confident lives. He wants followers who do his will every day and who, as a result of doing it, gain confidence and surety and certainty. You know how it is that if you're unfamiliar with something, you often will lack confidence. Uh, If someone was to put me on a big Harley-Davidson motorcycle and say, ride it, I would be terrified and probably have another broken leg or worse. I have not a clue as to what to do. However, if I'm taught, and if I have the time to practice, then maybe slowly the dread will give way to confidence. 
But to give you another example, an, an iPad. You give some older people one of these new electronic gadgets and they freeze up. They don't know what programs to download. They don't know what buttons to push. And they hold their breaths whenever they do. But here, too, teaching and practice drive away fear and instill confidence. And you know, the same applies to faith and good works. The more you learn and apply, the more you know and you do, the more you understand and you act, the bolder and the more confident, the sure you will become. You'll be assured, as the catechism says, of your faith by its fruits. Never apply your face. It will shrivel. Never exercise it. It'll die. But on the other hand, live it, practice it, wrap yourself in it, apply it, and you will thrive, and you will grow. And you'll become confident and assured. And that's what Christ wants. He doesn't want these children here this afternoon to grow up as timid children, as insecure followers, shaky disciples. Now, it's as we're told in Hebrews 12, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And so, beloved, the Spirit, Christ transforms us by the Spirit because he wants us to live a total life, a confident life. And one more thing, and maybe that's kind of hard to capture, but I've kind of called it a magnetic life. Christ redeemed you and the Spirit renews you for what purpose? in order that you might draw others to him. In Philippians 2.14, we have that well-known passage that God wants us to become children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out, as you hold out the word of life. Those are beautiful words. Children of God. That's what we are, right? Living in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Isn't that true? Shining like stars in the universe. Is that also true? Holding out the word of life to others. Is that true as well? Christ, who is the light of the world, says you are also the light of the world. And the question that needs to be asked from time to time is, are we? Is this true? Are we, are we still glowing? Is our life still a reflecting kind of life? Or are all the lights turned off? 
when it comes to our witness. If they are, we will not draw anyone to our Lord, the Lord whom we serve. We're meant to be light. One of these days, summer is coming, I'm told. And no doubt many of you will go camping. And at night it tends to get kind of dark. Unless you're camped under a lamppost. And when it gets dark, you turn on some lights. And, and when you turn on some lights, what invariably happens? All the flies and the bugs and the mosquitoes, they come out of hiding. They're all, you see, attracted to the light. It draws them. It draws them like a magnet. Well, pardon the comparison, but that's what you and I are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be like magnets. We're supposed to be drawing others to Christ. We are supposed to win them, the catechism says, for our Savior. We need to teach our children to do the same. And so, beloved, the question remains, are your lights on? Are you doing good works? Works because of your love of Christ alone. Works in the power of the Spirit. Works that praise Him every day, that build up your faith. And that pull the hearts and the lives of others to Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.